So if you have your Bible, uh, please open up to Romans chapter 6. And we're looking at verses 15 to 21. If you're using one of the seat Bibles, you'll find Romans 6 on around page 800. And I want to start with a question, and that is, if Paul is right, as we've been looking at the book of Romans over the last few months, if Paul is right about all that he said, then why shouldn't we sin all we want? This spring we've been following Paul as he's been laying out his gospel. And he's told us that, that we're all sinners. And um, that because God is just and runs a universe that is just and fair, we all deserve God's punishment. But that God loves us too much to destroy us, and so God's Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross in our place, identifying with us and took the punishment that we deserve. And so for everyone who believes in Jesus, God offers to forgive all of our sins, to reconcile us back to himself, and to welcome us into his family, treating us as if we'd never sinned. Paul called this grace. It's, it's a pardon. It's, it's favor that, that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve. And, and Paul said that God's grace is so great that it always outweighs our sin. That the more our sin increases, the more God's grace increases. If sin is a a skier speeding down the mountain away from God into condemnation and death, then grace is an avalanche rolling and overwhelming that skier with God's love. If sin is a raging forest fire destroying our lives, then grace is an ocean flooding in and quenching that fire. God's grace is so great that our sin is no match for it. After all, my sin is the size of me. But God's grace is the size of God. Grace will win every time. No matter how much I sin, God's grace is always abundantly more. And God is abundantly willing and even delighted to forgive me completely. That's what Paul says. We, we read it in Romans 5. And if Paul is right, then why does it matter if we sin? After all, we'll be forgiven for sure. And if we sin more, God will just get to show more of his grace. And, and grace is a good, beautiful thing. Now, I, I'm not joking here. I, I'm, being, the, 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 I'm asking a serious question. If Paul is right, then why shouldn't we sin all that we want? And if you don't see that this is a serious question, then maybe you don't understand God's grace yet. Maybe you don't realize that that for me to worry that my sin could get too big for God's grace to forgive would be like a kid playing in the Sahara Desert with his sandbox toys, worrying that he might run out of sand. For me to worry that my sin could get too big for God's grace to forgive it would be like a girl dipping water from the Hudson River to water the flowers in her flower pot, worrying that she might run out of water. That's how great God's grace is and how wonderfully abundant God's grace is. And so I'm serious when I ask, why shouldn't we just sin all we want then? 
there's more grace than we could ever use, and grace is so wonderful. Now, I'm not the first to ask this question. The writer Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells about a, a little group of Christian martyrs in the third century who devoted their last night in prison as they were anticipating their execution the next morning. They devoted it to drunkenness and revelry and promiscuity so they'd get a good grace, a good dose of grace when they died. And also the Russian monk Gregory Rasputin is known to have taught and lived the idea of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. And so he believed that since those who sin the most require the most forgiveness and grace, that a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys more of God's grace than the ordinary sinner. Therefore, Rasputin lived a life of notorious sin and taught others that this was the way to salvation. Why not? Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20 of Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now, I'll bet some of you are with me here. I'll bet some of you hold to this perspective too. You believe that it's okay to sin because God's grace will cover it. Only maybe you have less faith than those martyrs or Gregory Rasputin did. You have a smaller grasp of how great God's grace is, and so you're a bit tentative about how much you sin. And so you do choose to do things you know that you shouldn't do, but only sometimes. You, you think grace is in short supply, and so you choose your sins carefully. Sometimes you, you share that juicy bit of gossip when you know you should keep your mouth shut. Sometimes you, you sneak that thing your parents wouldn't want you to be doing. Sometimes you, you cross that sexual boundary you know you probably shouldn't. And you figure it'll be okay that you'll probably be sorry afterwards and, and so you say, I'll ask God to forgive me and I know he'll, he'll do it. Or there's an opportunity to step up for Jesus and to help someone in need or to, to give generously and sacrificially to a godly cause. And, and you pass it up this time because you figure it's okay, I've got the grace to cover it. I know I should do that, but I'm not going to. After all, God hasn't had to give me grace too many times lately, so I'm sure there'll be enough to cover this time. <laughs> but you don't sin like that all the time because you don't get how really great and abundant God's grace is. You don't have enough faith in God's grace to be a really bold and reckless sinner. The truth is your God is too small. You barely believe the gospel. If you really believed what Paul is saying here, you could sin big. You could sin boldly. You could sin greatly. Right? Or am I on the wrong track here? Well, before you disagree with me, I, I, I want to point out one more thing that Paul says. And that is verse 14, that we are no longer under law, but under grace. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. What's God's law? Well, it's, it's the Ten Commandments. It's the book of, books of Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. All those Old Testament commands that God gave to teach his people how to be good, how to be righteous. 
We're no longer under that law, says Paul. And Paul is going to elaborate on this further in chapter 7. We'll see it over the next couple weeks. He's going to explain that, that if we died with Jesus Christ because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we died to our old life when law was in charge. And we were raised to a new life, a life of grace, a life of freedom. And so if our faith is in Jesus Christ, Paul says we are no longer under the law. Sounds like just another reason to sin as much as we want. Because God has thrown out the rules. We couldn't keep them anyway. The rules God gave us just condemned us. They just showed us how terribly sinful we really were. Have you read the Old Testament? God's law didn't work to make us good. And so God finally threw it out. He said in love, well, I'll just have to take the rap. I'll just have to take the punishment for all of this people's sins, past, present, future. I'm just going to have to lavishly wash them all away in my grace. And so we are no longer under law, Paul says, but under grace. All of our sins are paid for, past, present, future. The Old Testament rules don't hold authority in our lives anymore, Paul says. And God has given us plenty of grace to cover anything we might do wrong. So if Paul is right, why shouldn't we sin all we want? Well, how does Paul respond to this suggestion? Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. By no means, Paul says. Some of you are relieved. <laughs> Paul says that the idea that, that we can sin because God, has, will, God will forgive us anyway, because there's enough grace to cover it, that that's a completely wrong way of thinking. But why, Paul? Why is it wrong? Help us to understand how you come to that conclusion after all that you just said about grace. Well, I, I think here Paul takes a page out of Bob Dylan's songbook. You, you know the Dylan song? but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We may be set free from the law. We may not have to serve God's commands anymore, but we're going to have to serve somebody. Nobody's completely free, right? Think, think of the teenager who gets their driver's license. When, when I got mine, I was so excited. I was free. I was no longer dependent on my parents to drive me places. I lived in the country. I couldn't take the bus. Um, but, but now I didn't have to depend on them. I could go see my friends even if my parents didn't want to take me. I could drive myself now. I could get a job. I could do so many things. There was so much freedom that I now had. But I quickly dis discovered that I still had to serve somebody. It, it happened when I was out with my friend one night. We were... Um, flying down the road in my family's 75 Nova V8 small block. And we're blasting crazy train on the radio. And uh, I was driving way too fast around a curve, squealing all the tires. And then I saw the blinking red lights in my rearview mirror. <laughs> and the officer pulled me over and he told me, free or not, I still had to serve somebody. <laughs> he didn't use those words. <laughs> 
My freedom, he was saying, wasn't just license to do whatever I wanted. It was freedom to act responsibly and safely. Immigrants discover this when they come to this country. Some of them come escaping places of of terrible repression and, and persecution. And they're so happy to be in this land of freedom. And yet, they, like we, still have to serve somebody. Freedom doesn't mean that, that any of us can drive like a maniac or, or kill whoever we want or just take stuff from whoever that it belongs to, right? We may be free, but we've still got to serve somebody. And so the question is not, are you going to serve, our, or let me put it a different way. The question is not, are you going to serve anybody? The question is just, who are you going to serve? To get back to Paul, the question is, if we've been set free from God's law because it condemned us to death, and so God in his mercy has set us free from it so that we don't have to serve it anymore, then who are we going to serve instead? Who are we going to serve instead, Paul asks. Are we going to serve sin? Well, Paul gives us two reasons that serving sin is a terrible idea. The first reason is that a main point of salvation is to get free from sin. After all, we, we were slaves to sin, and, and sin just, just leads to condemnation and death. That was the mess we were in in the first place. I, I heard one preacher tell a story about uh, on one Memorial Day, he, he that, that my family and I were, went whitewater rafting on the Kuia River. And he says, when we started out, it seemed like we were in control of the raft, but, but then we came to the first rapids. These weren't Delaware water rapids. These were Kuia River rapids. <laughs> and, and, and big waves threatened to, to engulf us, and the water swirled around us and pushed and pulled at us. And no matter how hard we paddled or, or even in what direction, we had no choice but to go through the rapids and down the river. You see, he said, it was, not, it was the river, it was the river, not us, that was in control. In the same way, before our salvation, it was sin and evil, and not us, that's in control. No matter how hard we try, sin and evil plunges us straight ahead into the abyss of ruin and destruction. Of course, Before Jesus woke us up to that fact, we didn't realize that this was our situation. We liked what we were doing, or we thought we liked it. Other people might be selfish. They might be annoying or lazy or self-centered, but not us. And we thought, you know, we weren't enslaved to sin. We We could stop. We could choose to stop doing wrong things whenever we wanted after all, we could point to negative temptations that we had overcome. We'd, we'd said no to that chocolate bar the last night that was going to put that weight on us that we didn't want. And we were proud of ourselves. And on top of it, we had the, the self-control to go out jogging this morning. So we were in control. But, but here's the thing we overlooked. That, that even though we could take that paddle and we could steer a little to the right and we could steer a little left, maybe we could... We could back paddle and, 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 you know, stop ourselves momentarily on the river. Um, at the end, we still all wound up at the bottom of the river. Why? Because sin was absolutely in control at the end of the day. 
But then Jesus helped us to realize that we've got to serve somebody. And that like the Israelites in Egypt who were enslaved to their taskmasters, we were slaves to sin. Ultimately, we couldn't stop sinning. We, we needed a mighty Savior to rescue us and to set us free. And like the God of Moses did for Israel, Jesus came powerfully and he rescued us from that slavery. And so if we follow Jesus, we have been set free from sin. Because now we have the ability to stop sinning. We've been pulled out of the river. And so Paul says, why would we want to live that way anymore? And second, Paul adds, it's a terrible idea to serve sin because of where sin leads us. What's at the bottom of that river? What's the result? What's the fruit of sin? Well, verse 21, Paul says, it's shame and it's death. What benefit, he asks, did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? And then he adds, those things result in death. The journalist Malcolm Mugridge gives a, a graphic example of this from his life. He, he tells about a time when he was working on assignment in India, and one evening he left his residence to go for a swim in a local river. And as he was entering the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from a nearby village who had come out to have her bath. And Mugridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment and, and temptation, he says, stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle actually for years and had always somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. But he says on this occasion, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment, and then he says he swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that, that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. And now, just a few feet away from her, as he emerges from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him suddenly pales into insignificance compared to the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. He says, she was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The ex that experience left Mudridge uh, trembling and, and muttering under his breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was my own heart. There you have the true fruit of sin. It seems attractive enough from a distance, but, but get up close and it's a different story. Well, the good news Paul tells us is, is that we have another choice. We saw this last week in the first half of Romans 6. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from sin. We have died with Christ to sin, and we've been raised with Christ to a new life. We have been set free from sin, thank God. But we've got to serve somebody. And Paul says, Christ has set us free to serve God. And so Paul exhorts us, live as slaves to God, slaves to obedience, slaves to righteousness. Now, how does that sound to you? Slaves to God, to obedience, to righteousness. 
Well, Paul doesn't quite like the way it sounds either. (laughs) And so in verse 9, he sort of apologizes for the language he's using. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. (laughs) Paul Paul is saying that, that, that being a slave to God and to righteousness is nothing like being a slave to sin or, or to anything else. God is so different. God is so loving that slave isn't even the right word to be using here. But, but Paul's using that language so we get it, so that we follow through with his point, that we've got to serve somebody. So what is it like to serve God? Well, the fruit of serving God, Paul says, is just the opposite of the fruit of sin. Instead of bringing to birth what is old and gaunt and leprous, Serving God brings to birth what is clean and whole and full of life. Paul calls it holiness, which leads to eternal life in verse 22. And I think holiness and eternal life are two of the more misunderstood words in the Bible. Because society portrays holiness as, you know, sitting piously with your hands folded while everyone else is having fun. And it portrays eternal life as getting to do that forever, sitting on a white cloud. (laughs) But that is nowhere near what Paul means. By eternal life, Paul means life in the age to come. Literally, the phrase in Greek that we translate eternal life, it means life of the age to come. The age to come when, or, or rather, the age to come which has now already broken into history through Jesus' resurrection. Back in verse 4, Paul called it newness of life. Paul explained how if we believe in Christ, if we are in Christ, that means that we died with sin to our old life in which we were slaves to sin and we have been raised with Christ into newness of life, into a new family, into a new creation. We looked at this. We celebrated it on Easter Sunday. Life in the age to come is the life that Jesus pictured and demonstrated for us during his life when he calmed a storm and he turned water into wine at a wedding and he forgave sinners and he partied with them and he gave sight to blind people and he healed sick people. He put what was broken back together again. He took what was alienated and he, uh, he restored it. He reconciled it so there could be community between people and people between us and God. Eternal life is is living into the reality of what this world will look like when heaven comes to earth. And everything is as it should be, the way that we're all innately longing for it to be, right? It's the good life. It's, It's the life of paradise as God meant it to be lived, and yet it's a life which has no end. And holiness... If that's eternal life, what's holiness? Well, holiness is just a character and a lifestyle that's in sync with the life of the age to come. And Paul says that's the fruit of serving God. That's the kind of life we're saved for. So how do we live this life? Well, Paul says in verse 9, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. And literally, Paul says, Present your parts as slaves to righteousness. If you look at the original language or a more literal translation, present your parts as slaves to righteousness. Your parts, present your hands, present your feet, present your tongue, present your heart, present your mind. 
show up, report to duty, to be about the business of serving God, of living into the new creation that God is bringing. One way that, that I've tried to do this that I found helpful, I learned from the theologian J.I. Packer when, when uh, I was a student of his. He said, think of it this way. Wake up each morning thanking God that he's freed you from sin and invited you to live in newness of life. And then follow these four steps. First, plan. Ask God, God, what's the good thing that I can do today as I live in your new creation? What's the good thing that I can do? Second, pray. Lift up your heart to God and say, help me, God, because I'm not going to get this right without your help. <laughs> Third, act. Believe that the Lord will, who answers prayer is going to help you. And so then go for it, expecting to be helped, and in fact, you will be. And then fourth, review. Thank God for what he enabled you to do and ask for his forgiveness for where you fell short. And then go back to the first step and do it again. <laughs> and I put this in your bulletin so you can take it home. Plan, what good can I do? Pray, God help me, I can't do this without you. Act, believing God will help you. And then review, give God the credit when you succeed and ask for his forgiveness when you fail because there is more than enough grace to cover all of your failures. And if we can get in the habit of doing that, of presenting our parts as slaves to righteousness, guess what we're going to find over time? We're going to find that we are beginning to live in whole new ways, that the grip of sin in our lives is loosening, that the bonds are falling away, and that the ways of righteousness the ways that are in sync with the life of the age to come are coming to fruit in our lives. So let me close with a story. A lot of us remember back in 2010 when that mine in Chile caved in and 33 miners were trapped half a mile straight underground. It was originally thought that probably they didn't survive the collapse, and uh, even if they had, they were probably going to starve to death before they could be rescued. But after 17 days of searching, one of the exploratory drill bits that they were using came back with a note attached. And it read, translated into English, we are well in the shelter, the 33 of us. And the nation of Chile erupted with waves of euphoria, and all around the world, we were rooting for these miners, right? And not only did the mining company and the Chilean government get involved, but, but corporations and, and governments from all over the world uh, offered their support, and including NASA from the United States with their technology was even involved. And experts came up with a comprehensive plan through the little borehole they drilled to care for the miners while they waited to be rescued and to figure out how to drill a hole big enough down through the rock half a mile down and to design a winching contraption to be able to get these miners up one at a time. And after 69 days of being trapped and over $20 million spent, the world celebrated on live TV, right, as these 33 miners were lifted one by one to the surface. And, and the doctors checked them out and they found that all of them were in relatively good medical condition and they figured there would be no long-term physical effects. And, and the world celebrated, and the miners became celebrities. 
They, they toured the world. They were on daytime TV in the States. They told of their experiences. But as time went on and the media spotlight began to fade, sometime later, follow-up reports began to highlight the psychological damage of the incident and the sudden celebrity which followed it. One rescued minor uh, began to binge drink to uh, become uncontrollably angry and conflictual so that his, his marriage with the woman through whom he had a child was very tenuous. It was blowing apart. Another was troubled by loud noises and, and he started building a high wall around his house for no apparent reason. A third suffered from nightmares and from uncontrollable sadness and could no longer express affection to his child. Another divorced his wife. Others found that they were having physical health problems. Their health was rapidly deteriorating and they were no longer able to function. And so the question that, that we have to ask is, do the Chilean miners need a second rescue? They had learned to survive death. But now can they learn to survive life? And, and what is a world which invested so much to save them from death able to do to help them to live? And that, I think, is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in today's passage. He's saying, Jesus didn't just come to save you from death. No, Jesus came just as much to save you for life for a new life, for a better life. So why would you go back and live as if you're still in the mine? You've been saved. So live in newness of life. Follow Jesus. Follow his example. Draw on his life and on his power. He will teach you how and he will help you to succeed as you learn to live the life of the age to come. Amen.